Would you please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11 will be the subject of our reading and my preaching this morning. First, chapter, first Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. I remind you, this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. O great God, come and equip us, come and enable us to hear your word. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts that we might understand afresh the riches we have received through grace in in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Do you remember that soap opera? Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. I know my friend John remembers that one. (laughs) And the idea is in this, as you watch this uh, soap opera, uh, there is the hourglass. It's turned up on its end and you watch the sand slowly sifting through. Time is running out. And that's the implication that time is running out. Time is running short. Time is quickly passing well, that's that's a concept that we are well acquainted with, but oftentimes we neglect to live that way, that, well, yes, there is a sand in the bottle that is the totality of our lives, and that sand is running out. Uh, we live as Christians, we as Christians, we know that we'll live with the Lord forever, and we know that we'll We've been granted eternal life through Jesus Christ, but that eternal life cannot be assumed to be in this world because it is not. However, we often live that way. We live with the principle that I'm not going to die today. I have plenty of time. That's the way. That's usually what governs our lives. But that's not the fact of the matter. The truth is we do not know the end of our days. We do not know the length of our time. We do not understand time itself. We have a hard time grasping the significance of the time lost and the time that we spend. We are familiar with this concept of time and how much we use it. Maybe we have become concerned over our use of time. Maybe we've even wept over our misuse of time and over the time that we waste in doing Nothing. Now, this is not in any way a rejection of the idea that we come away for a vacation period or or that we need time each day to, frankly, empty our minds of all that is 
that, that is pressing in by way of concern, obligation, uh, work and employment and all the rest of things that uh, fill our heads. But the Apostle Peter is writing to a church and to a church that feels alienated in the world in which they live. And he's reminding them, yes, you are aliens. You are, you are elect aliens. In other words, you belong to God. You are alien from this world. You are awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. That is the consummating moment that we are all awaiting, whether we ascend to the Lord when we die or the Lord comes in the clouds and the angels descend and he snatches us up with him in the clouds, regardless of the fact Regardless of the facts surrounding our ascension to Christ, one day, one way or the other, one day we will ascend and we will be with the Lord. Well, Peter is writing to these church folk who are still immersed in this world and in all that this world entails in our involvement in culture and society. And to be honest, these people that he's writing to, they're elect aliens, but they're also suffering significant persecution. There are certain things in their daily life that they are suffering because precisely they are Christians. Now, maybe you don't feel this morning that you're in in the same boat as they were, but, you know, all of us are in some way, we're here on the Lord's Day. We're not out pursuing employment. We are not working and thus adding to our financial advancement in the world. There's one day we recognize it belongs to the Lord. It's a day for worship. It's for the works of necessity. It's for the day of labor in in the Lord and for one another in service in the name of Jesus Christ. And that way, yes, we we suffer a little a little more because we have a little less than we would have if we're fully employed in those seven days. Perhaps you have friends who have said, you know, uh, recently as Peter explained explained in the first four or first uh, seven, six, pardon me, six verses of this same chapter. uh, People are surprised. You you don't come along with them in, in doing the things that they do in their debauchery and wickedness, their embrace of things which are contrary to the Lord. You're not out today enjoying full uh, sort of vacation sort of fun. You've not said, family, we're going to have a a day of family fun. And and so leave early in the morning, make it out to the Musquamacate Beach and get as red as you possibly can get. Or whatever the thing might be that that most relaxes you. I can't imagine how that could possibly mostly relax anyone. But still, uh, traffic and people and... Uh, and, and the sun and getting so roasted, uh, I just don't understand that. But it's what pleases some of us. It, it is. Maybe you don't understand that I just enjoy walking through the woods, that I, I love fishing. I, a dear friend spoke to me this last summer and said, you know, the fishing thing, I, I just don't get it. And that's okay. We all relax in our own ways, and we all are in need of relaxation, coming away and resting. The Lord Jesus did this. Often he spent those times in prayer. Other times he was eating, reclining at a table with his disciples and friends, speaking to them, talking about about God and fellowship together. 
Peter is writing to these people who are persecuted. They are elect aliens. They are struggling with how they fit into society. They are suffering. Peter has explained to them there is purpose in their suffering. But he's also explaining the necessity of not neglecting the Christian disciplines too. And that's where we find ourselves this week. We answer some questions. We answer some questions that we might have about, well, how do I fit in with the church? He's already answered the question in verses 1 through 6 about how we fit into the world, as we explained last week. But how do we fit into the church? How do we fit with one another? How do we meld with one another in the service of God? And so uh, the Apostle Peter is going to explain a number of subjects to us. He's going to tell us a number of things about ourselves. He's going to tell us what we need. He's going to talk about my attitude. He's going to talk about uh, my church or my Christian family. He's going to talk about my gift. He's going to talk about my God. In all of these various ways, I think these few verses break into those sections. And so uh, first and foremost, he's going to talk about uh, my attitude. The truth is that so few of us really think about the significance of eternity. And we don't often live in light of eternity. When was the last time that you thought in the course of your day, well, you know, I have to think carefully about how I'm going to use today, these 24 hours, because the Lord is coming again. I have to think carefully about how I'm going to use this Sunday and this time with my family because, you know, the Lord is going to come soon. Or if thinking about what, what employment I'm going to engage in and, and about what next job I'm going to take and about transitions in my life and, 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 and interactions and relationships with other people. Uh, when was the last time we considered, you know, the end of all things is near. Therefore, how should I live and what does God want me to do? I don't think that that's a compelling reason that we take in each day for how we ought to live and how we should engage with our world. We we are all too often satisfied with the lazy pleasures of this world, but we need to be reminded, we need this reminder that the end of all things is near. You think about that. Here you are in the midst of life in 24-hour periods, seven days a week. We, we come into the worship of the Lord on Sundays. We enter in and we engage with God's people. But the truth of the matter is with every new week, we are one week closer to, to being with the Lord. Whether we ascend to the Lord when our body dies and, and the silver cord is snapped and a spirit springs to God, or the Lord Jesus comes and renews all things. One way or the other, the end of the Lord, the end of this world is near. The return of Jesus Christ is near. You remember that the word says, a thousand years to the Lord is like one day. And so when the Bible speaks of the nearness of the return of Christ, we have no idea the timing of that moment, but we are certain as to its future certainty. The truth is the Lord is coming. The Lord may come in our own time. He may wait 10,000 years, but the return of the Lord in the course of human history is near. And the, the fact is that the Bible tells us that we are to be prepared for it, that we are to be conscious of the end of this world in which we live. 
We are to be conscious of the fact that Jesus Christ is coming. That we will one day be with the Lord. In other words, that the stewardship of our time in this world is coming to a close. The stewardship of our body, of our gifts, of our relationships, of the moments of our days, it's coming to a close. And when we ascend to the Lord, we will give an account. We will give an account for every moment, for every day, for how we have used this life, this world, and what has motivated us in living for him. So Peter is seeking to arouse I think, sleepy Christians or distracted Christians, distracted by suffering, distracted by all sorts of things. And we, too, this morning need to be awoken from that drowsiness of life. How many of us are really thinking that this next week is all about the doctor's visit on Wednesday, lunch with a sister in the Lord or a friend on Thursday, uh, and that Wednesday evening Bible study is going to happen at, in, in the pastor's house, and and then you'll be there again next Sunday. How do you know that? How do you know that? Two weeks ago, I heard of the death of two beloved PCA ministers. They they both died on within the same 24-hour period. Both men believed the gospel of Jesus Christ and both ascended to God. One was ill for a while, but he knew that he was dying, but it happened very, very quickly. It came very, very fast. And the other was simply out driving that morning. And he ran into a, the back end of a dump truck. Died in an instant. I read the story of a young woman, 22 years old, was driving with her husband and her brand new one and a half-year-old baby. And in an instant, a drunk driver hit them at 87 miles an hour on a dark country road, killing her husband and her daughter and her, her, her son. And she says she goes home and she feels homesick because her loved ones are not there. You see, man does not know his time, does he? And we do not like to think about the end. We don't really want to consider that, well, we're not going to live forever. One day, yes, this life and all that it entails will come to an end. And we will be with the Lord. That is of great comfort to the believer. I will be with the Lord. I'll never be separated from him. I will be with all those who have loved the Lord too. I will be in the company of the, of the righteous and there will no longer be the free reign of sin. My compelling desires for sin will no longer be present in me. I will only live in light of the affection and delight of my Savior. That day is coming and it's coming sooner than you realize. It's coming sooner than the way in which you live recognizes as well. I know I didn't say that correctly, but you get my point. We tend to live quite differently. We tend to live with the assumption that, yeah, I I have another week. Or yes, I I have another month. Well, I'm certain I have another 10, 15 years. It's the average number of years that a person has to live. There are some of us who have lost loved ones who 
We did not expect that they were going to die that day. We know what it's like to endure tragedy, surprising tragedy. And oh, if we could only have a moment, a moment, one moment more. Well, the truth is of the matter is that we are to live in such a way day by day that we live in full expectation that we may not live forever. That we will not live in this world forever, that's for certain. But that we are intended to live in eternity with the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth in the kingdom of God. That's where eternity is. And yet we embrace the idea and we live in such a way that we we believe death is far off. I need a new attitude. I need an attitude adjustment. And so Peter says the end of all things is near. Therefore, have you ever watched a movie where the end is where it begins? You start at the end. I heard it said that the writer of Harry Potter and that book series, and and you realize this if you're a fan of it, if you've ever watched it, uh, you know that in the beginning of the first book, I can't tell you what that book is, I don't know, um, I've read it, but I can't remember. But uh, she she began writing that story. And when she did, that night, she also began writing the last story, the seventh book. And the reason why is because woven throughout all those stories is the exact situation to which little Harry Potter is being brought. And all the circumstances of those other books have significance really only in light of the last book, and the last great event of that last book. I've heard it said that in order to write a good book, you have to know its ending. You have to know where you're going. What's the goal? To what are we ascending? What, to what are we progressing? For the believer, that's where we are beginning. The end is near. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming. And so I need to adjust my perspective. I need a very different attitude about life right now. In fact, the word that he uses there, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. The word means sane. So in other words, don't be insane. Be sane in your thinking. In other words, real, sober, of sound judgment. I need to assess. I'm not going to live forever. I have no idea when I'm going to pass from this earth. Therefore, that should ethically inform every decision I make and how I live every moment. I may not have another moment. I may not have another week. I may not get another year. And for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, for every person who, who is in need of Christ, which is every human being, We need to carefully consider eternity. Eternity. There is a compelling motivation that comes to us when we realize our time is limited. And when we realize that our time is running out, there is this compelling motivation that comes to us. And Peter is seeking to to really hit us with that stick this morning. He's writing to his beloved people. The end of all things is near. 
take the word of God at face value. The end of all things is near. He's not saying the Lord Jesus is going to return over the next week or the next month or the next few years. He didn't pull a herald camping moment. No, he's simply saying that in light of the the counsel of God, as he's speaking in light of the counsel of the Holy Spirit, that, that with God a thousand years is as one day. Therefore, yes, the return of the Lord is near. It may happen now. It may happen next month. It may happen next year. But it, it's near in light of the fullness of eternity, which never ends and keeps going. The return of the Lord, the end of all things, is near. <clears throat> The truth is that Peter doesn't add other things. He doesn't add other events. He doesn't add, there's very little else to expect before the Lord returns. It's not that we can, you know, stand there with our notebooks looking for various signs. Okay, this sign has not yet occurred, and I'm waiting for two or three other signs before then I'm going to begin to live in such a way that, yes, I know the return of Christ is soon. Uh, The expectation of the New Testament is that there is nothing else but the return of Jesus Christ yet remaining. That we are waiting for the Lord to return. The Lord is near. The end of all things is near. When the heavens will melt and the earth will melt. And the new heavens and the new earth will descend out of the heavens. Peter says, watch. Peter's calling us to watch. You know, Jesus said the same in Matthew chapter 25, 13. Watch for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man comes. Jesus said that. Your Lord, your Savior said that. Watch because you don't know when I'm coming. Watch. Is a preparedness that is expected of every believer, self-controlled, of sober, sober spirit, sound judgment, We're not to indulge ourselves in the inebriation of our vain cares and pleasures in this world, nor building for us a legacy. If if anything, we are to build a legacy for God. Because in the end, nothing will endure under the fire of God's judgment except what is done for the Lord. Except what is done through the Lord, by his grace, for the Lord. So Peter says, pray. Pray, the end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Maybe we struggle with prayer and we say, well, prayer is such a difficulty for me. And and, and I sit down in prayer and I struggle with knowing what to pray about. I struggle with wanting to pray long enough and, and, and of incorporating praise of God and the various elements of prayer. I struggle with this, but do you hear what? Peter is incidentally saying is a help to prayer, a sober mind, a sound judgment. So before we even begin to pray, we need to think about this fact. The end of the world is near. The return of the Lord is near. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming soon. I will one day very soon be with the Lord. And that should have its direct impact, an immediate impact upon our prayer life. We should at the very least be struck with the fact that the Lord is coming. The end is coming. And I'm not prepared. 
Of course we are prepared if we have Jesus Christ, if we believed in the Savior. And if he's our Lord and Savior, we have, we have nothing but exultant hope and anticipation of Christ's coming. And yet we are also stewards, and we are stewards of the marvelous gift of his grace. We are stewards of our relationship with him. We are, we are stewards of, of his gifts, which he has given to us. And he's called us into his service, and we have a holy obligation to live for him. And that way, are we prepared? Are we ready? Have we done all that we could for the Lord while living in this body? Have we used our time wisely? Have we been faithfully carrying out our calling, caring for our families, leading our families, seeking the Lord while he may be found? praising the Lord, enduring, living for God in the midst of difficult and trying circumstances, in the midst of grief and struggle. So Peter says, look, pray, but you need a sober mind to do it, and you need sound judgment, which come only from the recognition that the end of all things is near. Let that burn into your prayer life, dear friend. The end is near. Shouldn't that motivate us and press us into prayer to sink down on our knees before the Lord consistently? How can I neglect daily prayer when I know the Lord is near? Shall I stand before the Lord with an ashamed face, with tears streaming from my eyes, because I could have been praying, I should have been praying, I should have been praying for my loved ones, I should have been praying for others in the church, I should have been seeking the Lord more fervently, and yet I have neglected prayer because I was convinced I had all the time in the world. Oh, beloved, the end is near. He speaks to a change in our attitude or my attitude, but he also speaks to my church. Uh, He encourages us and he teaches us about what changes we need in our perspective with regard to my church or your church or a Christian family. Above all, he says in verse 8, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Life within the community is hard. Sometimes we offend one another and we become bitter over the the offenses that we feel. And sometimes we hold things against one another. We gossip. We share things we shouldn't share. We say things we should not say. Sometimes our attitudes are not the best. There are days when I get up and I begin interacting with my family and or church folk and I realize that I need to pray because I need the soberness of prayer to fall upon me because my attitude's not the best, that I'm, I don't have the right perspective. You know what that feels like when you wake up and you realize there's some little bit of critical bitterness that's present in me today, and I'm not inclined to be humble, merciful, and gracious where I should be. You ever realize that I, I need a heart adjustment? I need the Lord to change my way of thinking this morning because my head and my heart are not right. Well, love covers over such things. Love. I listened this last week to a new, I read a news story. I didn't listen. I read a news story uh, from uh, the uh, former CEO of Target Corporation. And he was talking about various maladies that, that that current church, uh, or that, pardon me, 
that that chain that uh, that that chain of stores is going through. And one thing he said in the midst of his conversation very much surprised me. He said, "What you really need, if you're going to be well received in the world today, is love." I was taken aback. When was the last time you heard that from a CEO? saying what, what you really need as a company is just, just to show love to people. Now, I'm not sure where he's going. I didn't. I read the article. I'm not sure exactly where he's coming from. I'm not sure he's speaking from a Christian position. I don't think he is. But I think he recognizes something that's very, very true. Love covers over a multitude of sins. And here within the church... The truth is that if we really love Christ Jesus, and if we really know the love of God, we should never, ever separate over any issue because the Lord has created love within us and he is leading us in love for one another. And love covers over a multitude of sins. We should never, we should only leave over doctrinal matters that... uh, Preacher is preaching something that contradicts the word of God. That, that, that you don't need love. That you need love for God to such an extent that you're willing to say, Lord, I'm going to abstain from this church, this, these relationships, these people I love because they are preaching something that's not true. So I love you more than that. But you understand what I'm saying. So-and-so offended me. I can't be in that church anymore. Love covers over a multitude of sins. Haven't you experienced the love of God? And can't you love your brother or sister like Christ loves you? Haven't we been forgiven much? And so those who have been forgiven much are willing to forgive much. What did Peter say to Jesus? Lord, my brother has offended me yet again. How many times am I obligated to to, to forgive this brother? And the Lord Jesus, he says, seven times. The Lord Jesus said, no, no, 70 times seven. Does he mean 490 times? No. He's giving him a number that, that, that expresses a, a non-completion. In other words, to be willing to continue to forgive as long as there is a genuine apprehension of the love of God. How many times has God forgiven me of similar sins? I could not limit that to 490 times. God has forgiven me of certain sins in my life, thousands upon Thousands upon thousands of times. Love covers over a multitude of sins. He commands forgiveness and love. Not just any love, but fervent, intense, vehement, physical, true, genuine, shown, prayed for love. It doesn't mean that we're all running around smooching each other, but but rather it does mean that we have genuine affection for one another and we are willing to show that not in a worldly way not in a sexual way but not in a romantic way but genuine christian affection being willing to hug a sister or brother in the lord who is hurting and struggling who's in tears on sunday morning being willing to walk down stairs with a young child and make sure that they get a hot chocolate, because that's what they want. And they, they're not allowed to drink coffee. Because you love that person. You love that little soul. Being willing to endure some noises on Sunday mornings because you love the parent that brings that young child. And, and because you love the Lord and the Lord loves them, you love them too. 
means that we open our homes to other people because we love them genuinely. And it's not too much to ask when someone comes and says, would you make a meal for this person who just experienced a loss this week? Of course, because I love them. And I love the Lord and the Lord loves them. Proverbs 10:12 says, hatred discovers reproaches, but love covers over all sins. Are we uncovering sin in our brothers and sisters in the sense that we are we are seizing upon small things so that we might demonstrate, at least in our own mind, I'm in a better place than they are. I feel a little better about myself. Or are we covering over sin? Someone said something insensitive. Someone, someone looked at me just wrong the last week. I'm just speaking hypothetically. I have nothing against any one of you in that way. Hopefully you don't have anything against me either in that way. There are moments when my wife will say to me, why would you look at me like that? I say, I, I have no idea. What, what way did I look at you? Help me out. Communicate with me. Tell me what I did. I want to know. I'm so sorry. We get offended so easily, but love covers over sins. Solomon in that proverb sets two poles against one another. That of hatred, which causes people to defame another person's name or to spread whatever is dishonorable and hurtful and wicked. But love, he says, is intended to, the, to do the exact polar opposite. That of individuals who love one another, who kindly and courageously and courteously forgive one another, even when they're not asked, and therefore willingly bury one's, one another's sins, vices, and obnoxious traits. I've got them. We've all got them. Character flaws. Well, we also seek to preserve the honor of another. I, I've wrestled with this question about forgiveness. I have for many years. And I, I think recently I've come down on this one, in, in, in this in, in one way. I've, I've, the question is, should we forgive someone who has not asked for forgiveness of us? Should we forgive someone who has offended us and who hasn't recognized or acknowledged their sin? And I, th- I think yes. If, if I, I think the answer is yes, I should. I, I'm convinced and I'm compelled by the example of Jesus Christ. He forgave us of our sins. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, does it say when 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 we when we sought the Lord and repented of all our sins, He forgave us? No, He forgave us our sins and He cleansed us of all our iniquity. As filthy sinners, as guilty sinners, He cleansed us of our sin. The love of God the Father was ours before we ever walked on this earth when all the filth of our lives was already known, before we had been converted, God loved us. And so love covers over a multitude of sins. There's more here, too, within our church and our church family. Uh, What are we to do? How are we to interact? How, How can we find our place? Well, he says, be hospitable, in verse 9, to one another without complaint. And it's interesting he says that, without complaint. Have you ever done something for a fellow Christian and you complained about it? I have. I have. I'm so busy. I can't believe I took this on. I don't have the time to do this. 
You know, they never said thank you. Has that thought ever occurred to you? It has. It has to all of us, I think. And there are ways in which we serve and we grumble. We do a good thing and we complain about it. But the Apostle Peter is telling us, look, be hospitable to one another without complaint. In other words, when we complain, we ruin the work done for the Lord. The glory in it, the joy in it is gone. The point is we are to serve with joy. We are to serve and find a, a well of joy welling up within us. So we are to serve the Lord. So we are, we are to open our homes. Yes. We are to open up our homes and do what pleases the Lord and do do kind things for our neighbors. To, to put a little extra soup on the stove and, and to be willing to invite someone that we haven't met before, someone that we really don't know very well into our homes. And, and even to do that with our neighbors, with our loved ones. And, and to say, look, if you come to lunch... I'd love you to come to church with me and then enjoy lunch in my home afterwards as I provide hospitality to you. This is an obligation. Be hospitable with one another without complaint. On a practical level, this is what we need to do to open our homes. Thomas Watson in this heading has said the saints are like walking pictures of God. If God is our father, we shall love to see his picture of holiness in believers. We shall pity them for their infirmities, but love them for their graces. It may justly be suspected that God is not father of those who love not his children. Though they retain the communion of saints in their creed, they banish the communion of saints out of their company. The same bond which unites believers to Christ binds us to one another. The love which is exercised towards God, toward Christ, necessarily extends to the members of his body. And so lastly, my gift, or second to the last, my gift. <clears throat> Peter wraps up these th- subjects and, and he says, essentially in verse 10, that everyone has received a special gift. We are to employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Have you thought about that fact today, that you're gifted, that you have a gift, particularly within God's scope of the economy of his grace and of his blessing that he intends for you to use in service to other people? What is that gift? He reminds us about the subject of gifts. And gifts are an interesting thing. There are, he, he singles out, by way of example, teaching gifts. that they, Those who teach are to proclaim the, the very oracles of God. To have a sobered sense of what they are teaching. And then those who simply do works of service. I love Paul's explanation of the gifts in 1 Corinthians, I think chapter 12, somewhere around there where he is revealing various gifts. He's speaking of gifts. It's not an exhaustive list, but he's going through it. Gifts of administration, gifts of preaching, gifts of prophecy, gifts of charitable whatever. And then he says, and gifts of helps. What is that? I think that's an extraordinary word. I think that's an overarching and all-encompassing word, gifts of helps. In other words, there are gifts that Paul expounds upon that are simply, wherever there is a need, I'm willing to help. I'm able to help. I have an attitude of uh, a compelling desire to help. Some of you are built like that. I can see it. 
Some of us, that's all we have, but it's enough. It's a gifting from God. It's not something that we can be proud of and say, look at me. I'm such a helper. (laughs) But rather, it's something where we say, oh, Lord, thank you for giving me a willingness to quietly help. I know that quietly helping pleases you and it glorifies you. I don't need the glory. Lord, you must be glorified. Peter Peter is telling us this morning that the time that we have in this world in which to help or to teach and preach is limited. At one point, we're going to be called home. Peter implies that each of us has been distributed what we have as far as spiritual gifts and abilities are concerned. And on this condition, that in helping one another, we might be ministers of God. That's what he says in verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. In other words, you've been given a gift, but you are a steward over it and God will hold you accountable for it. Are you being a good steward? John Calvin says this consideration is very important. That the Lord has so divided his manifold graces that no one is to be content with one thing and with his own gifts. But everyone has need of the help and aid of his brother. This, I say, is a bond which God hath appointed for retaining friendship among man. For they cannot live without mutual assistance. Peter teaches us here that God has designedly done this that he might bind one another to each other. As good stewards, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And this is what we hear, what we need to hear. Many of us, we're very inclined to be secretive about our concerns, that which really deeply concerns us, that which is weighs heavily upon us, things which we are fearful about, our future, our health, our diagnoses. We keep to ourselves, we quietly go on living without the aid of the rest of God's servants and without mutual prayer. But but wouldn't we be greater, more greater comforted by knowing that, yes, I've shared something a little bit humiliating about myself, a great need that I've kind of kept from God's people, but I'm a steward of this. And they have gifts that I need to partake of. And they can be praying for me. Shouldn't we be sharing with one another? This is where I am. This is, this is what I'm struggling with. This, this is what I've come through in the last few years. Pray for me. I find as a minister with whom quiet, secret things are shared often, in which I endeavor to keep my mouth shut with, We are all struggling. We are all coming from various situations that cause us great concern, fear, anxiety. We are all struggling. All of you are. Why should we not be praying for each other in the midst of all of our struggles? There's a certain amount of dishonesty in not saying something. And not asking for God's people to pray for us. Let's leave behind that spirit of dishonesty and of pride. 
It's here in the church. It's here when your brothers and sisters are pleading for the Lord's grace. It's it's here where God will meet you to aid you in your work of ministry. It's often channeled through use and stewardship of one another and of each other's gifts. And God has given that to you. And oh, we, we don't take advantage of it to our shame, to our neglect, to our, our deprivation. But he's given to us, each of us, to one another, the privilege, the stewardship of praying for one another. And so lastly, we come to my God. Peter gives us this clear statement in verse 11. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever? We are to be engaged in God's work, dear friend, and as ministers of God's word or helpers, we are not our own. We are faithfully to deliver as from hand to hand what God has intended for the nurture and admonition of his people. When someone serves and helps you, when you are prayed for by someone who has set aside time in their day to lift you up before the throne of grace, Give praise and thanks to God because he has provided that for you. The sense is, according to one writer, that God does not adorn us with his gifts, that he may rob himself and make himself, as it were, an empty idol by transferring to us his own glory, but rather that on the contrary, his own glory may everywhere shine forth and that it is therefore a sacrilegious profanation of God's gifts when men propose to themselves any other object than to glorify God. But we do glorify ourselves, don't we? Look what I did. Let me talk about how I made this today and how I did this for that person and how I prayed for all of you. I used to have someone years ago who would tell me every time, I prayed for you today. I'm grateful. It should be an encouragement to me. But this person would make a point of saying it so that I would say thank you so much. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You remember that kind of language from Jesus? We should be faithful in prayer, faithfully lifting up. And where we feel it would encourage that person to come alongside and say, you know, I just want you to know I've been praying for you. I'd plead with you to pray for me too. But I know the Lord is going to hear my prayers and I'm trusting that the Lord will be gracious to you and provide for you and help you. There's encouragement there. You know what it's like when we go to someone pridefully, we have an an expectation of their praise. But when we simply go to them for their encouragement and tell them, look, I I just want you to know that the Lord has led me. He has, has placed this burden upon my life and my heart. And I'm praying for you. Please be encouraged. Dear brothers and sisters, do you love the Lord? Do you love his people? Do you know that the end is near? Are you fervent in prayer? Are you fervent in spirit knowing that, yes, the end of all things is near? There's a certain fervency, a vigor, an awakenedness, a change in our attitude, a change in our perspective about the church, 
a consuming desire to glorify God that falls upon us if if we would just get it into our head and our heart that the end of all things is near. May God impress upon us that this world is coming to a close, that eternity is ever before us, that the Lord Jesus is coming in the clouds, that the new heavens and the new earth are even now being prepared, and the place of dwelling with the Lord in His house is being prepared even for us for this moment. And so that should compel us as God's people to live for His glory, to live vitally within the community of God's people, to open our homes and our lives, to be a steward of the mysteries of God and of the gifts that He has given to us, because we are certain of this reality. The end is near. The Lord is coming. May God give us such a spirit. Let's pray.